flight. Yeah, you see the response there going on uh, live right now in the Middle East, Connell, and then back here in Washington, of course, there are the questions about what the White House is going to do, as we now know 11 Americans at least are now dead. Connell, thank you. We'll catch you tomorrow. We start here on the Hill with this war in the Middle East and questions about what next to do with Iran. One United States senator is suggesting that Iran's oil fields could be in play. Coming up, we'll speak with South Carolina's Lindsey Graham, what he says should be President Biden's red line. And we'll get the latest from the presidential candidates on what should happen next. Plus, back here in Washington, don't call it a comeback. Or maybe it can. Is Kevin McCarthy now the leading candidate for his old job? Republicans are set to meet in the basement of the Capitol later uh, this hour, and we will take you there live shortly. And did you see this? RFK Jr. launching his independent bid for president. It didn't start off so smooth. I need my speech. You can't read anything. You can't read anything. It's upside down. We will get into what happened after that. The Hill on News Nation starts right now. Hello and welcome on in. It's obviously been a busy start uh, to the to the work week after an incredibly busy weekend and his, and an historic one at that. Thanks for being with us here on the Hill. I'm Blake Berman, joined today by a great panel. Julia Manchester is the national political reporter for the Hill. Chris Dyerwalt is News Nation's political editor and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Morgan Ortegas is the former State Department spokesperson during the Trump administration. And Johanna Mosca, a former Obama official and News Nation contributor. It is now midnight in the Middle East, the war between Israel and Hamas now in its third day. Back here in Washington, the White House is confronting the devastating reality that 11 Americans, at least, are among the dead. And American hostages are believed to be among the many inside Gaza. We did hear from President Biden on Saturday. This has been all-consuming for the commander-in-chief and his administration, as you might imagine. But for the second day in a row, we will not hear from or see the president of the United States. In fact, before the lunch hour here in Washington, the White House alerted reporters that we would not get a glimpse of the president today. Morgan, um, you have a long history in this region, and, and with the ongoings there, you were in Iraq uh, during the Obama administration, Bush administration, Bush administration yeah. in Saudi Arabia during the Obama administration, State Department spokesperson during the Trump administration. Peel the curtain back for a little for us here. What is it like inside, or what do you think it's like inside the White House and the State Department right now? And what do you think they should be doing right now that they're not? Let's start, though, with, the, with that first question. You know, anytime you're in these positions of power and authority in the U.S. government and you have Americans uh, lose their life, especially in some sort of terrorist attack, uh, it's gut-wrenching because you don't have time uh, to have the emotions that you want to have. Um, I remember in January of 2020, after we uh, got Qasem Soleimani, the world's largest terrorist at the time, uh, who was, of course, uh, uh, Iranian, um, after we got him, we knew, you know, there was this sort of 
moment where you thought, okay, we got this terrorist, but then you knew it was coming immediately afterwards. Mm -hmm. And we immediately had to switch to being prepared for what would happen to our troops in Iraq and our troops in in Syria. Uh, And just knowing that you were waiting, uh, that people might be in harm's way, that's a devastating feeling. I I will tell you, you know, my heart at the moment, um, I don't want to be overly political about this. I have people who work for me whose friends lost lives in Israel. I am Jewish. Uh, Half my temple, I think, has children in the IDF or people friends and family in Israel, it has consumed my family and social and and work circles. And it's incredibly personal for me. But I will say, most importantly, as an American, uh, we have 11 Americans that are dead. We have an untold number of hostages. We have at least probably 200,000 Americans, 200,000 that live in Israel or we're visiting there. Some may have trouble getting out. Um, And this is a moment when we need to hear from our president. We need to see our president. We need to hear from our vice president. You think that's at the top of the? Friday. Yeah, you think that's at the top of the list of what the White House should be doing it's at this like point when, in time. All of us at this table are old enough to remember after 9/11 when George W. Bush got out there with that bullhorn. Yeah. I was in college and I was so scared. Right, our country had been attacked, but to see our president grab that bullhorn, or you think after after uh, President Obama got UBL and he went and gave that speech, uh, UBL Osama, Osama bin Laden. Laden. Yep. Sorry, I'm using military no speak, but you know it was so important for us in that moment to hear from President uh, Obama because. That uh, defined so much of the 2000s, the the war on terror. And now it's, um, I I don't, I just can't fathom how the president and the vice president haven't made a statement after Americans have been killed, killed by terrorists. You traveled the world, Johanna, in the Obama-Biden administration. Mm -hmm. Is it a mistake that we haven't heard from this president now two days ago? So first, I want to thank Morgan, because I think that politics is like, you know, when you see people being raped and pillaged, a lot of these debates that we have in America, they're just not that important. You know, we need security, we need peace, we need freedom. The only issue I would say that's different here is that this situation is evolving and ongoing and seriously just so... um, important that they get this right. And so I know that the White House, you know, struggles sometimes to communicate with the public right away, but I hope and pray and I trust that they are all hands on dealing with the response on this and that their their next priority will be conveying to the American people what's going on. But when you have people hostages that are currently in the situation, you're trying to get them out. My guess is prepping President Biden for a address to the nation is not the top priority. I I think that we all have a little bit of PTSD because there's still Americans left behind in Afghanistan. Um, And we saw what happened in that disastrous withdrawal. And so that's why when you sort of, in a way, it feels like history repeating itself again on the world stage from what happened in the fall of 2021 and August of 2021. And that's why you think, okay, the White House had to have learned a lesson from the fall of Kabul um, with Americans still there and know that they need to get uh, ahead of things. And we heard Kevin McCarthy talk about Afghanistan and that analogy. Right. We'll get to Kevin McCarthy in a bit. But uh, over to Israel now, where our Robert Sherman is on the ground once again for us. Uh, Robert, um, the, the Biden administration on Saturday, I found it striking on, on Saturday evening when I was on a call. Many of us uh, were with the senior administration official. They basically said that we would start hearing very soon what aid from the U.S. to Israel could be like. Are we getting a sense uh, now, some 48 hours later, of what that actually might be? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of reading in between the lines here, Blake, not putting any specifics on it, but we do know it's going to have much to do with munitions and things of that nature. I mean, we've been standing here all day long, and we have seen the Israeli fighter jets going back and forth, bombing and pounding the Gaza Strip all day long. We've seen the Iron Dome intercepting missiles overhead. Every single one of those missiles has a price tag on it. And granted, you know, there are large stockpiles here in Israel, but those do need to be replenished. So we know that that's certainly going to be a part of it at some point. Robert Sherman, live for us on the ground uh, in Tel Aviv this evening once again. Robert, thank you. Well, the attacks in Israel, and stay safe, of course, Robert. Uh, the attacks in Israel are bringing foreign policy to the forefront of the 2024 presidential campaign. For example, here was the former president, Donald Trump, in New Hampshire earlier this afternoon. The atrocities we're witnessing in Israel would never have happened if I was president. Joe Biden undid it. He undid it all and gave billions and billions of dollars to the world's top sponsor of terror, tossing Israel to the bloodthirsty terrorists and jihadists. But Republicans aren't just pointing the finger at President Biden. For example, Mike Pence, Donald Trump's former vice president, called out three Republican presidential candidates. This is what happens when we have leading voices like Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Ron DeSantis signaling retreat from America's role as leader of the free world. Chris, Julia, I haven't got thoughts from from either of you yet, um, either opening thoughts or if you want to start there on, on what we've heard from the Republican presidential hopefuls uh, in the last 24 to 48. Well, we have lived for some time in a very unserious moment in American history. Uh, despite a coronavirus pandemic, despite Russia's invasion of Ukraine, despite so many good reasons for Americans to grow up uh, and get over their selfish squabbling, self-seeking and venality. But instead, right, what we've gotten is more of the same. When you see those images and you think, and I, Morgan is particularly right, the idea that there are Americans held hostage by terrorists in a foreign land doesn't just make you think about the fall of Afghanistan. It makes you think about the hostage crisis of the, of the late 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reality here and how hard and important it is for the United States to be the leader of the free world, how hard and important the job of the presidency, how crucial it is to have adults in these jobs, not debating whether or not they can wear gym shorts on the Senate floor <laughs> or not debating all of the, the silliness and pettiness that tends to dominate our politics. Let us just pray. Let us just hope that this is a moment that we can return to ourselves for a little bit and remember the cost of American failure. You know, for me, what's been most striking is the response we've seen to this. Morgan, you brought up 9-11, and thinking about the response to 9-11 in America was one of unity. The day after, we were all unified, and I think we've seen that in Israel. Sure. But stateside, we haven't seen that. Yesterday, there was a rally held in New York City that was sponsored by the Democratic Socialists of America. It was pro-Palestinian. But at this rally, you saw lots of anti-Semitic um, imagery, hate speech, that kind of a thing. And, you know, you go on social media and what you see is almost a defense or what I would say is a defense in many ways of what Hamas is doing. And I don't think there is this opinion anymore or there isn't this, I guess, perspective anymore that you can be pro-Palestinian or have compassion for the Palestinian cause 
but at the same time speak out against anti-Semitism. And we have seen lawmakers from both sides speak out against this. And I think this comes at a time when we're seeing anti-Semitism across the world you know, reach, uh, com- continue to grow. I, we have to be careful. Can I jump into what yeah, you said? Because it's just so important. There, this is mass extermination of Jews like the world hasn't seen since the Holocaust. Uh, these are children that were ripped from their mother's arms and taken in hostages. There was an 85-year-old woman um, that they executed and her granddaughter, they being the terrorist, and they executed because their grandmother had her Facebook feed open and they, and they started showing it and she found out for her grandmother's Facebook feed. There are women at the concert that we all heard about. The yeah. ones that weren't killed were brutally raped and then paraded through the streets of Gaza with blood coming down their legs. Uh, there's reportedly images of a teenage girl being burned alive. And these are people that are doing this to people because they are Jews because they hate Jews. And we have allowed so many people to dehumanize the Jewish people. I am so lucky that I live in America and that my daughter lives in America because two-year-olds and three-year-olds like my little girl in Israel today were killed, Mm -hmm. killed or taken hostage because of their faith and their ethnicity. This is evil. There's no other word for it but pure unadulterated evil. There's no all sides in this. There is no justifying what they did. This is terror on a scale that makes ISIS look easy. All right. Well, let's go back out to Israel. Uh, With us now is the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for being with us here on the Hill. You just heard a little bit from Morgan there, and I'm wondering if you wanted to to pick up. I want to thank you, Morgan. Uh, That is the clearest voice I've heard in the last uh, 60 hours. Uh, I've been doing a tremendous amount of American media, um, going now on the second all-nighter, if you will. Um, and I've heard these animals referred to as militants. I've heard them referred to as fighters. That was in my last interview about 20 minutes ago. Fighters. Uh, fighters do not line up 260 young people at a, a music festival and shoot them dead. Fighters don't take families out of their homes and kill them in cold blood. They don't rip families out of uh, out of vans and shoot them in the head. They do not, as Morgan said, uh, rip the clothes off of young women, rape them publicly, and then parade them through the streets of Gaza where they'll be spat upon and, and beaten up. Um, these are not fighters. These are not militants. These are vicious medieval jihadists. And by not calling them that, by not calling that, it's not just a disservice to the Jewish people, Morgan. It's a, it's a disservice to civilization itself. And this endless moral equivalency, you know, the head, the headlines in the New York Times in the an outbreak of war was Netanyahu declares war. Netanyahu declares war after 200 Israeli uh, civilians and citizens are, are massacred in cold blood. Um, and and that has been the headlines over and over again. And then they have this tendency to to aggregate all the people killed so far. They'll say 1,200 people or 1,300 people killed so far in the fighting in Gaza. That's that's lumping together all of Israel's casualties, including these hundreds now, apparently 900 people killed as of tonight uh, with the terrorists who killed them. That's like sort of saying after 9-11, well, you know, 3,019 people were killed on 9-11. That's that's the way we feel about it. Um, so thank you, Morgan, and thank you for all of you who, who feel the way she does and expresses uh, support for us at this very grim and dark hour. Mr. Ambassador, you know, the, the analogies are made, of course, to, to 9-11, that this is sort of Israel's 9-11 or Israel's Pearl Harbor. After 9-11, there was a, you know, a, a lot of introspection here in the United States, a lot of soul searching, a lot of questions as to what went wrong and, 
and how do we, how did we miss it? I think of the 9-11 commission report in which, you know, one of the headlines from it was the system was blinking red. And, and yet, um, it, it still occurred on our, on our soil. There's, there are real questions at this hour about how all of this was missed. Do you have a sense of how this essentially was an intelligence breakdown? I do, I do. Um, but we, for the record, we should say that this is our 9-11. We should never compare tragedies. Uh, but just numerically, proportionally, this is about 13, 14 times greater than 9-11. Uh, this would be uh, the equivalent of we've now lost 900 people. That's about 14 times more than the, all of the Americans lost on 9-11, the equivalent of about maybe 40,000, 50,000 Americans killed in a single uh, day. It's, uh, it's quite un- unspeakable from our perspective. Uh, I do. I, I've spent a long time in Israeli government. After I was ambassador, I was in Knesset, and I was the deputy in the prime minister's office. And for a while, I was actually in charge uh, of the Gaza situation. And I probably learned more in that period than I learned in many years in, in college. Um, but uh, in 9-11, and I think in, in 50 years ago during our Yom Kippur War, uh, again, a surprised attack for which Israeli intelligence was unprepared, um, there is type of a groupthink, like what they call in, in anglicized Hebrew a concepcia. And what was the conception? Well, back in 1973, it was, you know, Egypt and Syria had suffered such a defeat in the 1967 Six-Day War that they would never dare attack again. Uh, in the case of Gaza, I think the group think was that Hamas has two hats. Hamas is a, a jihadist, it's a terrorist organization, but it's also a sovereign in the, in the Gaza Strip. It's, it's, a, it's a de facto independent Palestinian state in the, in the, in the, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, and and. Hamas is responsible. It's responsible for the quality of life, for sewage, for electricity. And uh, it was a feeling in Israel that Hamas was increasingly focused on that hat, on the sovereign hat. And then if you had dumped a lot of Qatari cash in the lap of Hamas, if you let 20,000 uh, Gazans come into Israel to work every day, that would give Hamas uh, something to lose if it started firing at us and would certainly make Hamas focus more on its, you know, its civic sovereign responsibilities. And it turns out it's completely wrong. Uh, these people are so subhuman that uh, they don't care about their own people. They're going to use them as human shields. They're now going to use our hostages as human shields. And in fact, it's not widely known that I learned while I was in office that Hamas uses and loses about 300 Palestinian children a year forced to dig tunnels. It's child abuse at a massive, massive scale. So I think my conclusion was after this period in government was that everything you know about that civilization, about human behavior, sort of what we call normal human behavior, if you know it, throw it out the window when you're dealing with Gaza. Former uh, U.S. ambassador uh, or former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, thank you for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good evening. Quiet evening. Yep. Um, can, can we bring up those live pictures uh, real quick? Because it was uh, Gaza City. It was dark, obviously, in the background. It's in, in the middle of the night there. But uh, they were telling me in, our, in my ear during that interview that there have been recent sounds of explosions. Obviously, this is anticipated and, and expected uh, here in the upcoming minutes, hours and days. Morgan, I'm wondering what you anticipate on the war front uh, we can expect. Um, and, and what is that in the background? It's a little hard to hear. I don't know. But um, I'm wondering what you 
well, anticipate we, that we can expect. We've seen the pictures, uh, obviously, of missiles and things like that. But what is going to be really challenging is when Israel, uh, when the IDF has to go house to house. Um, and that's the uh, that's the type of urban warfare that American troops had to do uh, in Iraq and some in Afghanistan. Um, in Fallujah, you know, we'll remember that. That was 2008 yep. um, in, in Fallujah when we had to go ho- house to house. And so that will be incredibly challenging. Um, I think that President Biden's statement yesterday was very important uh, for he and, and many mainstream Democrats, but especially hear the president say that he was going to stand beside Netanyahu and, and stand unequivocally beside Israel. Uh, that's what we need. And quite frankly, that's what we need is two weeks from now and three weeks from now when the whole world tries to put handcuffs around Bibi Netanyahu and Israel and tells them that they need a ceasefire. Nobody would have told us after 9-11. You think that's what's, you think that's what's coming? Well, there was a, I don't remember his name, but there was a Democratic congressman, I believe, from Pennsylvania who said this today, and I totally agreed with him. I'm paraphrasing, but he said no one would have told us after 9-11, you know, to calm down, you need a ceasefire. We were going after the terrorists that attacked us, and we need to give Israel the same latitude in order to do so as well. All right. Well, uh, we continue to, to keep our eyes uh, on the skies there over Gaza as uh, anything uh, breaks, develops. We will break in uh, with the latest as it warrants. But coming up, here comes Kevin. Uh, turns out he might not be out of the speaker's race after all. What Kevin McCarthy said earlier today and why some Republicans are saying don't count him out. The latest from the halls of the Capitol when The Hill on News Nation returns. That's a decision by the conference. I'll allow the conference to make whatever decision. Whether I'm speaker or not, I'm a member of this body. I know what history has had, and I can lead in any position it is. All right, so that, of course, was the former, at least for the moment, Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, when asked if he sees himself as a candidate for his old job. McCarthy, as you heard there, seemingly left the door open to that possibility. Now, there is a meeting that is set to take place among Republicans in the basement of the Capitol about 35 minutes from now. And that is where we find News Nation Washington correspondent Joe Khalil, Joe Kay in the Capitol hallways once again. Uh, so what are you hearing, Joe, about Kevin McCarthy? Hey, is, he, is he trying to take the gavel back? So the most interesting thing that we heard about Kevin McCarthy came from Kevin McCarthy today. And you just played it, the fact that he was not closing the door at all. When asked whether he might accept the nomination, he actually said that's up for the conference, which is definitely not a no. Uh, There are three other House members so far who've come forward and said basically they think he would be the best choice. And he today spent a lot of time sort of brandishing his own chops on Israel and his connections with the Knesset there. Uh, Having said that, we just heard from Congressman Steve Womack here, another influential member, and a couple of others who think they're just not sure after all these rounds, all the drama, that McCarthy's able to get to that 217 number. If you talk to people behind closed doors, they still like McCarthy, a lot of respect for him, but they're not sure he can cross that threshold again. So some are ready to move on to Scalise or Jordan or potentially someone else here, Blake. All right. And, and Joe, so how much, obviously, the dynamic over the weekend and, and what, we, what took shape and what we are witnessing, how much uh, did that change the dynamic in the speaker race? You know, so we've been asking that question, and certainly I think it adds some level of urgency. That's what we just heard from Congress members here uh, as they're coming in. Ironically, I did ask Speaker McCarthy that. That was my question. And uh, he actually said, while it's, it's important, those eight people who voted to oust him, 
are still going to be in the room, and he didn't think that this war in Israel is going to move them at all. The turmoil that was there before, he says, still exists now. And you talk to a lot of people here, they still think the divisions are very serious and stark. So, yes, there is a war in Israel. Yes, that adds some urgency to get this done. But uh, there is a very divided conference meeting behind me right now, and it's not clear whether they're going to get their ducks in a row by the end of this week. In fact, most people don't think they will. Joe Kay in the Capitol hallways. Joe, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Chris, so I asked you during the break, it was like the old famous Tiger Woods versus the field bet uh, back in Tiger's heyday. If you had to take Jim Jordan and uh, Steve Scalise or the field, who are you taking? Well, look, I, I think Steve Scalise has the, is more likely to be be chosen as speaker by Republicans than anybody else. Okay. Uh, it's, he's paid all of his dues and then some. He has been there, uh, and he does have more standing with the uh, right wing than McCarthy did. So Scalise certainly gets his shot at this. I think that while McCarthy is quite right about the division uh, and those eight and the people who are against him, we have to remember most of the conference doesn't trust Jim Jordan. Hmm. And if these activities uh, that we have seen, if this slaughter that we have seen in Israel does anything, what does it tell us? Be serious. Grow up, right? You, now is the time for grown-ups and people who know how to lead and people who do this stuff. Jim Jordan has spent a lot of time sucking up to the mainstream uh, and becoming, trying to be a loyal lieutenant to Kevin McCarthy, standing with him yeah. uh, as the Gates crew uh, came into wreck shop. But I don't think that most rank-and-file Republicans think that Jim Jordan is the kind of guy they want to have speaker. Hmm. I think Scalise has a much better shot. The Republicans just need to figure out who they are going to have lead their, their caucus. And the truth is, Kevin McCarthy's already had the job. You know, we don't need more people in this. I heard Matt Gates this weekend say he's up for either one of them. Just vote. One, just vote, bring it to us. And these these folks who are calling that the Democrats should have, you know, saved McCarthy, it's like none of them would have helped save Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> so we're going to have like a true debate. If you're going to have a bipartisan, you know, problem solver, then you need fresh blood. You know, blood. you use the word problem solver, and I do want to raise that point. And I think there's some blame that should uh, rest with the problem solvers uh, caucus. Mm. Uh, though, if you're ever going to do it, and I'm stealing this from my colleague Kevin Williamson, but it's very, very very true. You say you're a bipartisan problem solvers caucus. Saving Kevin McCarthy's bacon would have been a real good time for those Democrats to have lined up and supported Kevin McCarthy. Or put up a new candidate. Because the truth is, McCarthy never reached out to Democrats. All right. Well, coming up, one-on-one with Senator Lindsey Graham. He calls the attack against Israel barbaric. What he's hearing and is the U.S. uh, withholding information about Israel from the public? We'll get into it. Plus, What to do about Iran? I spoke with the senator moments ago, and what he is suggesting, if there is an escalation, will catch your attention, and you will hear it coming up after the break. All right, welcome back to The Hill here on News Nation. Hamas is threatening to execute prisoners it has taken from Israel for every strike that Israel launches at Gaza. While U.S. officials are not yet directly blaming Iran, several members of Congress are willing to do just that, including the Senator Lindsey Graham, who I spoke with just a little while ago. Senator Graham, thanks for joining us here on the Hill. I want to start with Iran, obviously, because we know of of the relationship between Hamas and Iran. As you see it 
right now, everything that's happened over the last 48 hours or so, and, and the threats going forward that are coming from Hamas. What should our posture be right now against Iran and the Ayatollah? If there's an escalation of this conflict, if hostages start getting killed, if Hezbollah in the north attacks Israel in strength, we should tell the Ayatollah, we will destroy your oil refineries and your oil infrastructure. We'll put you out of business. Without money coming from Iran and weapons coming from the Iranians, Hamas would be nothing. Hezbollah would be nothing. There are 100,000 rockets um, in Hezbollah control in the north in Lebanon. So I think our policy should be to hold the Ayatollah accountable for killing nine Americans, for savagely attacking Israel. The goal is to destroy the effort to normalize between Saudi Arabia and Israel. I talked to the Israeli ambassador and the Saudi ambassador today. Both of them said unprompted that they're 1,000% sure that this attack by Iran through Hamas was designed to scuttle the effort to normalize Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States. We cannot let them be successful. So, Senator, you talk about this possibility with the oil fields. Who, if, if it were ever to get to that in your mind, who should take the action? Yeah. Would it be Israel? Would it be the United States? Would it be both? It would be both, in my view. Listen, how many Americans have to die at the hand of the Ayatollah before he's held accountable? The sanctions work to some extent. The Obama-Biden policy toward the Iranians has been a miserable failure. They're about as effective with the Iranians as they are with the border. You know, only God knows what's come through our border. But we have a, time, a chance to reset here. Uh, this is a Israeli 9-11. It couldn't have happened without Iran's money and technology and weapons. So it's time to hold them accountable. Any escalation of the conflict should result in a joint attack on the Iranian oil infrastructure to put them out of business. If Iran is, is believed the killing, that, I think they would think twice. Is the potential killing of, of hostages, Hamas is saying that could be the case and that they would even broadcast it as well. Yeah. Should that be a red line for our commander-in-chief? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you know... I, Listen, the Biden administration has this view toward Iran that's just naive as hell. You know, the Obama-Biden administration has been trying to bribe these people into being better citizens. They're religious Nazis. Listen to the rhetoric coming from the Ayatollah and his henchmen. They want to purify Islam in their own image. <clears throat> you know, Saudi Arabia is at risk here. They want to destroy the Jewish state. They want to kill all the Jews and eventually come after us. It's long past time to hold this regime accountable. So if I were the Biden administration, I would communicate to the Iranians, any escalation at all, we're coming after you. We saw the, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, over the weekend not draw a line between what happened a couple days ago and what's been ongoing uh, and Iran. I want to get your reaction on, on the other side. There's a long relationship between uh, Iran and, and Hamas. In fact, Hamas wouldn't be Hamas without the support that it's gotten over many years from Iran. We haven't yet seen direct evidence that Iran was behind this particular attack or involved, but the, the support over many years is clear. What do you yeah. make there yeah. of, this, yeah. of the Secretary of yeah. State not yeah. 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 drawing a, a line from yeah. A to B? Well, you know, he's trying to dance on the head of a pen. I actually like Tony. The $6 billion of humanitarian aid released by the administration was Iran money. It's in a Qatari bank. It will be drawn down to help the Iranians. They haven't drawn any money. But the gesture of giving them aid reinforced a narrative. We don't see them as bad actors. 
The main problem is that every turn the administration has rewarded the Iranians uh, no matter what they do. You had Rob Malley, the, the chief negotiator of the Iran nuclear deal, has lost his security clearance because he may have shared classified information with the Iranians. So the Biden administration needs to reset. Uh, the idea there is no direct link, I think, is silly. There is a, a direct link, but it's been going on for a long time. So it's a chance to reset. If I were the Biden administration, I would enlist the Congress to back up my voice and let the Iranians know that we jointly view you as a bad actor. If you kill any hostages, Israeli or American, if you expand this war by unleashing Hezbollah on Israel, we're coming after you jointly. Does the House, Senator need a speaker in place to fix this. I hear everything that you're saying as it relates to the Biden administration and the current president, but there is uh, this big question mark uh, up on Capitol Hill. Do do Republicans need to get their act together uh, on the other other side of the chamber as you see it? Yeah, uh, Republicans need to get our act together. Taking Kevin McCarthy down was not a very good idea. I know people are frustrated. I'm frustrated. But the House is in turmoil. Chaos in American politics emboldens the bad guys. This all started with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Weakness by us in any place hurts us everywhere. So I'm urging the Biden administration to change their Iranian policies, secure our border. I'm urging the Republican Party to unite around a new speaker next week, this week. Don't draw this out. I'm urging my colleagues in the Senate that have holes on ambassadors that are key positions in yep. the world to let those holes go. Now, I'm urging uh, Coach uh, Tuberville, Senator Tuberville, to rethink his policy of holding 300 military members who are ready to be promoted hostage Senator, because of bad abortion policy. Yeah, I, I hear you, and I got to run real quick, though. Should that speaker uh, be Scalise, Jordan, or McCarthy, or someone else as you see it real quick? I really don't care. We need a Republican speaker. We need a functioning Republican Party and a functioning House. Let's get our act together this week. Senator Lindsey Graham, South Carolina. Appreciate the time as always, sir. Thank you. All right, Morgan. So in there, Senator Lindsey Graham said, quote, if there is an escalation in this conflict, and he goes on to say, we should tell the Ayatollah we will destroy your oil refineries and your oil infrastructure. So there's a lot of things in these types of situations that are passed behind the scenes, you know, to each other about where everybody's red lines are. Um, in the Trump administration, under Secretary Mike Pompeo, uh, whenever Iran was funding the Shia militias that were attacking our embassy and our troops that were located in Iraq, we made it very clear to them if any Americans were harmed or were killed, uh, that that was our red line and then we would go after them. Um, and, and I do think the Biden administration needs to make those red lines clear. I, I'm all for... Uh, having bluster and, and, you know, thumping your chest if you can back it up. <laughs> the worst thing to do, as we saw with Syria and the Obama administration, is to have a red line that you and don't then. back up. Well, and here, this, like, conversation that he's having, he's saying naive as hell. Like, he's talking about starting World War III, essentially, which I I, I'm here. not okay with. <laughs> but, no, this naive as hell and, like, all of this political talk that has happened in the aftermath of this, I'm just so frustrated about it. Because do they, worse than giving $6 billion and getting the people, which, by the way, the $6 billion are just sitting in a Qatari bank, so worse would be having Americans in Iranian 
custody during all of this. Now we have them home and the Biden administration can actually use that money as leverage as they're trying to get Qataris, Emiratis, Saudis to try to deconflict and bring about peace. Yeah, and but my, you know the other, my side, frustration, the other side of the argument is money is fungible. and, and they, they keep saying that, but, but why aren't we working together here? You know, if we said the reason that this is happening is because Trump kept the plans for a war with Iran in Mar-a-Lago, Republicans would accuse us of being political. If we said it was because of Jared Kushner's peace plan, it would be political. And instead, we're just supposed to sit here and take it. It's very frustrating. I think we do need to come together. We need to have a solution, and we need to stop calling each other naive as hell. All right. Got to leave it there. Coming up, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. breaks up with the Democrats, the presidential hopeful now says he will run as an independent. So why the switch? Does he pose a real threat? And did you see how all of this started earlier today? You launch a presidential campaign. It's supposed to be smooth, right? Didn't happen. We'll show it to you coming up. It's very painful for me to let go of the party of my uncles, my father, my, my grandfather, and both of my great-grandfathers. There have been independent candidates in this country before, but this time it's going to be different. Because, because this time, the independent is going to win. All right, so that was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. earlier today announcing his independent bid now for president and his break from the Democratic Party. An historic moment from a member of one of the most famous, famous Democratic families. But the speech got off to a bit of a rocky start. Watch. I need my speech. You can't read anything. You can't read anything. What? Yeah. It's it's upside down. Upside down. Oh, boy, Chris. Uh, Ron DeSantis got crushed for the whole Twitter thing, you know, with the technical uh, difficulties at the time and then RFK Jr. today. But uh, on the substance, this was a full flip-flop. A full, you know, a full 180 for RFK. He he told us there was going to be no plan B. Well, uh, you may be surprised to hear that sometimes people running for office uh, change their minds uh, along the way. Look, in Ron DeSantis's case, uh, that crash and burn uh, undercut his core uh, purported value, which is that he was a competent leader and he could do things and that he was Trump without the Trump and it was going to be all that stuff. And then he had this goofy uh, opening uh, and it was a joke. This is the RFK Jr. brand, right? It's real. He's Bullworth. He's where's the script? I don't know. He's living out loud. Um, I particularly took note of the location of the speech and of the context in the speech, the content and context, which was our liberties. He kept talking about our liberties. He talked about the Constitution. He talked about the Declaration of Independence, and he talked about those things. The Libertarian Party will choose its nominee at a convention in May. 
That, to me, sounded like he could be running as libertarian. Now, he's not going to get on the ballot anywhere. Cornell West was going to run on the Green Party. Democrats basically said, look, if you do that, you could cost uh, Joe Biden too many votes. So he's now running as an independent, which means he's not running uh, because you can't get on the ballot in enough states to make a difference. Libertarian parties on the ballot or will be on the ballot in almost every state. Uh, we've heard from their former uh uh, their former nominee, Gary Johnson, that he'd vote for RFK Jr. in a heartbeat. Libertarians need a candidate. And if RFK Jr. Uh, does indeed seek the Libertarian nomination and he does get it, it will be big trouble for Republicans, whether mm -hmm. Trump is their nominee or not. Big trouble for Republicans? Yeah, I think it's interesting watching the evolution of how Democrats and Republicans have responded to RFK. At first, uh, Republicans thought, oh, it's sort of this funny, this candidate pops up and they can use it to poke fun at Biden and, you know, even say, look, you're facing a primary candidate, this is bad news for you. But now you hear a lot of, you know, more conservative-leaning voters embracing RFK. Yeah. And polling shows that he could take voters not only from Biden, but also from Trump, and that spells trouble for them. All right, let's bring in Elizabeth Vargas. Uh, Elizabeth Vargas report starts about uh, eight minutes from now. Elizabeth, you had the town hall with him earlier this year. He told you no plan B. Yeah, he sure did. We just saw plan B. I guess we're on plan B. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, Chris just made a really import, important point there. The most difficult part is running an independent is getting on the ballot in all 50 yeah. states, um, which is why it will be key if he gets picked up by the Green Party, because then he will be on the ballot and could possibly peel away votes from President Biden, but also from President Trump. A lot of his support is uh, from disaffected voters who've been, you know, fed up and frustrated with the pandemic response, along with a lot of other things. That's who he is appealing to. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see. I'll be curious to see how his tone changed, the tenor and tone of what he hmm. says changes, if it does at all, yeah. on the stump as, a, as an independent. But yeah, he, he was very strong in our town hall. I asked him specifically yeah. about running as anything but a Democrat, and he almost was, it was almost an offense to him that, I am a Democrat. My family yeah. is a Democrat. And, you know, classic story, Democratic family. And here we yeah. are. All right, what do you have uh, coming up tonight, Elizabeth? Well, obviously, we're really covering all aspects of the Israel crisis. So I'm going to be speaking with Admiral John Kirby about the very latest threats from Hamas to begin executing hostages one by one and posting videos of those executions on social media if Israel does not stop its punishing campaign right now on the Gaza Strip. Uh, the videos today of that bombing campaign have been pretty spectacular uh, in their strength and severity. Um, so we're going to ask him point blank whether or not those videos and that bombing uh, not only will it risk uh, executing um, hostages, yeah. which are, according to the Israeli government, include Americans, and whether that has the possibility of further inflaming the Arab world uh, and, and gather, gathering and garnering support from Hezbollah or other uh, yeah. Arab factions. So very dangerous situation going on right now in the Middle East. Indeed. Elizabeth, thank you. You can catch Elizabeth Vargas reports about six minutes from now coming up here at six o'clock here on News Nation. Elizabeth, thanks, and we'll be right back. Some final thoughts on the other side of the break. Welcome back to The Hill. Before we go, just some final thoughts uh, around the table. Julia, start with you. Yeah, I think over the past three days, we've seen the worst of humanity, but we've also seen some of the best of humanity with many Israeli communities coming together to support each other and also much of the international community coming together to support Israel. Yeah. Chris? America is the indispensable nation. We may not like the responsibilities that come with doing the work that we have to do, but it is what history and the world have given us to do, and I hope to God we can find a way to do it. Mm -hmm. 
I, I agree. I think when you look at the uh, images that I've seen of the of the young men and women who are uh, flying to Israel, trying to reenlist, somebody who recently works for me, her fiance's headed over to reenlist. He's not even in, 